Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And over the page, 5 verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in, on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And breathe. What a passage. Um, this series has been really challenging for me personally. Um, I found, as we've looked through the book of James, we've been looking at various dangers that we might need to watch out for. And I found myself basically personally identifying week in, week out. And this, this one in prep was as hard as any of them to say, actually, I need to look at this myself and, and change the way I live and the way that I think. James is speaking to Christians, I think, in the main part who think they have it together. And I know that I'm at risk of thinking of that, that as well. Today we go for a danger that I reckon many of us, if we're honest, will really identify with. Um, I have three little children. Uh, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old as part of that three. And um, getting distracted at home has more consequences. There's dangers to it. I heard a shout from my four-year-old the other day saying, Ezra's got cereal and milk. So I run down the stairs and find him with a four-pinter of milk and a box of open cereal in the kitchen awaiting the carnage. Thankfully, I got there just in time. That isn't the worst one. I was showering the other day, and I turned around to find my son with my razor, and he cut a load of hair off my leg. <laughs> it's, it's quite high up, so I'm not going to show you, but there's a lot of hair gone. And I guess what I'm trying to say is there's danger in distraction. We say the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing. And today's topic is all about that, the danger of distraction. As we're probably getting used to now, and James, if you've been here with us for the last few weeks, he doesn't beat about the bush, he's quite direct. He's direct about these areas of distraction where he thinks that they are likely to be really unhelpful for us in life. And before we head into the passage, I'd love us to go back to the Bible, 1215, and look at the verses that come just before the bit we were reading. So let's, let's have a look, because I think it highlights to us the thread of what our posture should be as we approach the verses that I read just a little bit earlier. The start of verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Flee from you. The word submit here could also be humble. And then later in verse 10, we hear that kind of same word again in humble yourselves before the Lord, that's verse 10, and he will lift you up. So in quick succession, we've got two things of saying, humble yourselves. So it's worth saying before we read, respond, feel convicted by the Holy Spirit, challenged about how we think, how we act to follow the example set by Jesus, 
who humbled himself. We need to adopt a posture of humility as we approach today's passage. Humility is a way of wisdom and not the way of the world, like Rory spoke to us about a few weeks ago. Humility is a God thing. We're going to work a little bit off um, a table today, and I hope it will capture and highlight kind of different things that for different ones of us we might want to engage with this evening. I, I was very aware as I was preparing this that I can think of times in my life where I absolutely needed to respond to a part of it, but I'm okay there now. And on the flip side, things that I absolutely need to think about today. And so I, I want to encourage you to, in, to engage with the Holy Spirit tonight, not really with me, uh, and asking him to bring life to this passage. So let's pray about that just quickly. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it brings challenge uh, and conviction. I pray tonight that we will be open uh, to hear what you have to say and respond in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So distraction number one. Judging others. We look at verses 11 and verse 12. This is where we're going from here. But judging others. We love it, don't we? I love it. Did you see that person? Did you hear what they said? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that that person did that. Often we judge with our words. And we know that the background in this book, James has talked about the tongue all the way through it. And the cutting power of the tongue. Start of verse 11. says, do not slander one another. He's back on it again. Be careful what you say. How often do you think the root issue of why we're judging someone is we worry about maybe them judging us? I think that's one of them. We worry that we're being judged, and so the easiest thing is to get there ahead of them. I look at other parents when I judge. I also look at other churches when I judge because that's where I'm at right now. I work for a church, and I've got small children. I look at the, I look at the way that they do something and go, interesting. I look at the way another church does something and I go, interesting. I don't mean interesting. I'm being judgy. But I think we're probably most at risk for whatever, wherever you are of judging in the areas that we are. The areas we have maybe perceived success or failure in, whether it be at work, whether it be people who are the same age and stage or whatever it might be, it's easy to judge from those places. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been judged. I found in those moments, I've been like, oh, I should really be careful about how I judge other people because it's rubbish. It feels rubbish. And this goes back to our posture of the passage to say, humble yourselves before God. Resist the urge to judge. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's have a look with me at verse 12, Once, page 1215. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You've got to be careful what you say. You've got to be careful what gets repeated. I have to be really careful what I say because my four-year-old will repeat it anywhere, including with extended family. It's not great. But I guess what I'm trying to say there is we all fail. There's a reality that judging others, we we do it. And actually, this isn't about a condemnation. This is about us saying before God, what do you want to convict me of in the way that I judge and the way that I think and speak about other people and and do it in a new way, a, a way that's in line with how Jesus would want us to. Imagine if we took the pressure off and lived in the start of that verse we just read, verse 12, that there is only one judge, Jesus Christ. Imagine if instead of being distracted by judging others, we left that with God. We're distracted by Jesus and what he says about us. It's liberating. If we decide to believe what Jesus says about us and live in that, actually our desire to judge somebody else isn't going to be there anywhere near as much because we're we're okay. 
Jesus says we're okay. If we say then we compare up, then it's probably right to say that we judge down. It's not an edifying thing. It's something negative. So where from here? The distraction is, is that we judge others. And a lot of the time, we flip and love it. Our wrong mindset is that I am judge. If we stop, take a moment, adjust our posture to humility, I have no right or status from which to judge. I'm thoroughly imperfect and deserving of judgment. Who am I to slander? Verse 11. We take a minute to do the hard thing and recognize that possibly we're not right all the time. Maybe we don't have it altogether perfect every single time and recognize our own ignorance. We reset our mind to be single-minded towards Jesus to remind ourselves that Jesus is judge. So how do I stop judging now? What goes in its place? It's recognize the status we have, that we're in Christ. Deal maybe with the roots of why we judge. Maybe we don't think we're good enough. Maybe that's something for us. When we look to Jesus and stop being distracted by judging others and the desire to, to slander, we realize only one judge matters, that Jesus is everything. We were talking in our connect group this week um, about being a community that loves one another, that when we love one another in that kind of space, that we are showing the love of God, we're showing God's love, and it's a foretaste of the new creation. And, I, and I'd like to say that if we get this stuff right, If we're a community that is slow to judge and quick to point people to Jesus and what he says, we're going to be living in what that new creation will look like. But the way we get here is to submit, humble ourselves, the posture of this passage. I wonder if we just take a couple of seconds to think, where in my life am I being a bit judgy at the moment? Are we distracted? By judging others, or are we distracted by Jesus? I would say it's not going to get heavier, but you know. Distraction number two future plans. Let's uh, read with me again, verse 13 to 17, same page. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even No, what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Distracted by the future. Our future plans, our best laid plans, our life goals, our own will and ideas, maybe... Driven by a root issue or desire, will I be successful? Will I amount to anything? Will I progress? Will my life count for something? I don't know if you guys got the memo. Jago was trying to hide it quite, quite carefully, but Christmas is coming. And uh, I've dressed up as a Christmas tree for you tonight as well. But Christmas is coming. And I think Christmas highlights a few things. And one of the things it really does highlight is those who are planners and those who are not. I got a a text from my sister who's going back to work after some time out in a couple of days' time, or it was a couple of days' time, and she said, hey, I've got just tomorrow to do all my Christmas shopping, so I want a perfect list from you and your whole family about what I'm going to buy for you. And I thought, no. So I sent a one-word rude text that was just, it was an item that she could buy for me, but I was clearly going to be disappointed on Christmas Day. And uh, I was like planner 
I'm a bit of a planner, but not quite as much as my sister. She was getting, it's November, guys. It's not even December yet. You don't have to buy Christmas presents yet. But planning is not wrong. That was wrong, but planning is not wrong. Um, but so often we plan the life stuff, the order becomes muddled when we do that. Our priorities and filters can get mixed up. The outcomes we have decided are the, goal, the goals are not necessarily talked to with, submitted to Jesus. They're not set before him. We say, hey God, I'm over here doing something really cool. Bless it. This is where I'm going. Isn't that awesome? Come with me. I wonder if we flipped that on its head and said, God, what are you doing? Where can I go? What are you blessing at the moment? And then walking in that, what would our future plans look like if we didn't just follow the curve of what we think we should do and instead submitted our day to day to Jesus? So the distraction, future plans. Uh, what could be our wrong mindset here? It's probably to say, I order my steps. To have the audacity to think that we might know best, better than the God of the universe. Verse 13, it says, making all the plans. Today and tomorrow we will go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. So how do we adjust our mindset of the verse 13, I order my steps? Let's have a little bit of a look at what happens um, next. The start of verse 14, it says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And it's, it's easy to think that we know what is best, that we are even in charge of our own destiny. We have this plan, um, we plan that. Sometimes they're good things, but are we involving Jesus in every step of the way? Or is he an afterthought? What do we do when we have made plans without God and then they go wrong? I'll tell you what I think we do. We blame God. It's ironic, isn't it? Why isn't this working, God? Why haven't you helped us? Is our daily attitude, my will be done, tomorrow belongs to me? We don't know what could happen tomorrow. What is our foundation if disaster strikes? If our plan is changed, loss, illness, unexpected job change? So often things in our life are out of our control. Our plans get interrupted. And I think it's in these moments that if we are practicing submitting our day-to-day -to, -day to Jesus that we have a foundation to deal with them. We have a foundation to say, I trust you still. I know that you've got it. We had a picture uh, in our prayer meeting before the service today of a map laid out on a table and the map uh, burnt up and, and underneath the map it just said, trust me. And I wonder if there's anything here for us where we're actually saying, hey, I've got all of these plans but when something happens, when a fire starts, when something changes, when something really difficult happens, is what's left there on the table, trust me. We've got to recognize our own transience as well. This is the second half of this verse. That verse 40, end of 14. Life is brief. It says this, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The spray of deodorant that I put on this afternoon to make sure I was smelling sweetly for you this evening. Let's also listen, uh, it's going to come up on the screen, Bruce Willis, famous actor. He says this, people think we have all the time in the world that we're going to live forever, and I, I know we don't. Life can be snapped out of you in a second, and even if you live to be 80 or 90, it still goes by in a flash. When you're a kid, summer seems to last forever, and now the months go by in a blink. Have we heard that somewhere before? 
I think Bruce Willis is with James. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Life is brief. Yet in this uncertain world, James had a, has a word of help for us, and it's in verse 15, the next verse. It says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, James doesn't just mean we should add, if it's the Lord's will, every time we start a sentence. He's urging us to depend on the Lord Jesus. Correct our mindset, to be single-minded to Jesus. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but Jesus is all over it. Do we have the caveat that verse 15 offers us? God willing might sound a little bit self-righteous in the wrong context, but actually I think those words contain a key, that our life is a gift from God. God willing is a phrase probably less used now, but I wonder if it comes from a good place of, of humility and submission. One that says, I don't order my steps, Jesus does. Joshua in the Old Testament says something along the lines of, we won't go from here if you're not going with us, God. He's got that right. So it's back to posture again, to humility. Submit to Jesus, your will. It keeps us from boasting, like it says in verse 16. So how will we address the route that leads to our wrong mindset? We recognize that our best future is found in the plan laid out by Jesus. In Christ, we are part of the true vine with a job to do. 4 verse 10 says, when we humble ourselves, he lifts us up. The best life we have we can have is found in following Jesus and submitting our plan to him. Stops being our plan at that point. Are we temporary and should live with our eyes on eternity? Yeah, we are. However, it's not just a waiting game. Jesus came that we have, may have life and life in all of its fullness right now. The best life. So let's shape our futures and our plans under the, if it is the Lord's will. And then verse 17, let's have a look back to that together. We're not going to go into that a lot today, but I just felt to ask the question, is there, is there something today that you know God has asked you to do, maybe to do with the future, and you haven't? When we know we can do good, do we? So the distraction here is future plans. The wrong mindset is, I order my steps. We recognize our own transience, when we go to the correct mindset that Jesus orders our steps. Are we distracted by future plans or are we distracted by Jesus? Distraction number three, money. Another small topic. The pursuit of riches, how we treat others. And whereas the section before starts brothers and sisters, and so we can see it as an instruction immediately to Christians, chapter 5 doesn't start in that way. And so we can look at this maybe speaking about those who don't know Jesus, and therefore it's almost an encouragement to Christians regarding the longevity and impact of money. If it's money first, then this is something you can only enjoy fleetingly. This is, this is the best it can be. Let's reread it again. Now, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes. That's good enough. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is a challenge to Christians, though. 
about what we pursue for our security and our status. This shows us what happens if we turn away from the truth in struggle, that this is what we have left. And if we're looking at this section and seeing that money has no longevity or impact in or on eternity, that it is fleeting, that it does then speak to what our attitude should be towards money. Money is so often a distraction, something that can consume us with worry and uncertainty. It can be the driving force behind most of our decisions. So therefore, it's totally something we want to have a Christ-like mindset on. Materialism. It's a huge thing. I don't think people tend to reject Jesus because they don't see the truth of what he represents. I think more often than not, people reject Jesus because they want to run their own lives. Money and material things in abundance allow us to do that. It subverts our hearts. Maybe the wrong mindset here could be to see that it's our money in the first place. Not as a gift from God to be used for and by him. I don't find myself looking at it like that very often, do you? Verse 3 is about hoarding. You've hoarded your wealth in the last days. Everything that we've been given, our gifts, our talents, our money, are there to be used by God. For us and for others, any gift from God is a call to action and not being passive. Do we try and just accumulate? Verse 4, you failed to pay the workers. Talking about exploitation. This is in a culture where somebody would work in a field and at the end of that day, the person whose field it was would come and pay them for the work that they'd done. And I don't think this passage is saying that they couldn't pay. I think it's just saying that they didn't. They chose not to. Money makes us believe that we can make our own rules. Maybe we cheat. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Living in luxury says, tomorrow belongs to me. Money can become the delusion of control. The reality of the future should lead us to soberly and humbly assess our attitude to wealth. And probably at this point, it would be wise to lean back again into our common posture, to humble ourselves, to approach the area of money with humility. Recognize that we are totally dependent on Jesus and that the correct mindset is that he knows what we really need and he also knows the best way to use what we have. What would look different in your life if you asked Jesus how he would use your money? Would there be less greed, living in luxury, self-indulgence, hoarding, all these things that we read as an encouragement for the church not to do, that that's not the way it should be? In this section of James, what is the root reason that we run after money? Maybe we don't believe Jesus will provide, or maybe we don't trust that he knows what's best for us. We chase after our own security. But the truth is, we can be totally dependent on Jesus. So the third distraction is money. The wrong mindset is it's mine. We've got to recognize our dependence on Jesus. And correct our mindset that Jesus knows what I need and how to use what I have. There's a reality that there is a risk of double-mindedness. We've talked about that through this book of James when it comes to money. And God, Jesus talks about it. He says you can't serve two masters. Are we distracted by money? Or are we distracted by Jesus? In conclusion... Christianity is not a therapy for a happy life. At its heart, it's a prophecy. 
It tells us about the future, that one day Christ will return as judge, 4 verse 12. It's past certainty and future hope. Christ was raised and I am raised with Christ. How will we live our time here on earth, quick to judge, plan, pursue money? There are so many distractions in life. There's a danger that we will never be distracted by Jesus. The only distraction that ultimately leads to an eternity with God and a life lived in all of its fullness now. Verse 9 of chapter 5, just after our passage, reminds us that Jesus, the judge, is watching. Does that change our posture to humility? Are you about having a life that reflects the life that Jesus has for you in these areas and beyond? When we think of money in the future especially, when we think, even now, when we think about who's going to run the country after this next election, who will we be depending on in this next season? That's an important question, but a more important question is, who will I depend on to run my life? Who will you depend on to run your life? And James is saying the choice is simple. Difficult, but simple. Will we depend on ourselves like the people in verse 13? Or will we depend on Lord Jesus Christ? As James encourages us to do in the line 15 of chapter 4. From distraction to dependence on Jesus. We spend our whole life trying to make ourselves the best me we can be carving out an exciting future, succeeding in wealth, and maybe we feel good in those things for a time. But let me tell you, the authentic you, the best you, the real you, will be found when you align yourself with Jesus, who he says you are and who he, what he says you're going to do. But we put the distractions of judging the future and money, when we put those through the lens of eternity, that we are not judged, and one day we will be judged that our future is not our own and our best life is found in Jesus and that money doesn't last in eternity, it's fleeting. How does that change our mindset and our posture? We're going to bring up the table, uh, three of them together. And if you're looking to it from, from left to right, I think at different times in our lives, in different situations, we sit somewhere on there. And I guess you kind of want to be that side, but so often we find ourselves over there. Just in a moment of quiet, ask yourself, ask, ask God, is there anything you want to challenge me on? Holy Spirit, is there somewhere that I am too far to the side that I don't want to be?